So hello, Plastic Pills listeners. Um, I'm very glad that you're joining us here on a fine Monday afternoon. Uh, we're here with J. Andrew World, who is becoming quite a well-known artist on the political left. You've probably seen some of his work, uh, for instance, for the Ben Burgess show uh, or for the cover of Against the Web, uh, which some of you will know was Michael Brooks's uh, debut book. Um, sadly, it was only book, I should say. Uh, but there was, you know, that kind of an iconic work uh, on top of that with uh, Michael and a bunch of other figures, some good and some bad. So we're he- we brought Andrew here today to talk a little bit about cartooning and comic books, uh, particularly what it's like to do both uh, in a political context. So thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. This is going to be fun. First off, I wanted to ask you, uh, are you a DC guy or are you a Marvel guy? I know we've discussed this before, but I'm not sure if we ever came down on one or the other. Um, honestly, I grew up as a uh, Marvel guy. Uh, my, my dad had um, the uh, the Origins and Sons of the Origins, which was this uh, 1970s uh, reprints of all the uh, um, the the, the uh, Marvel books. So so uh, like you know, I'm cutting my teeth on um, you know Jack Kirby, Stan Lee, uh, Steve Ditko, and um, uh, Gene Colan. You know, so so like right off the bat, my base is is pretty well-formed. And then uh, as I got uh, older and started uh, buying comics on my own, um, I ended up graphing toward, uh, gravitating towards X-Men. You know, I never wrote, read a lot of X-Men. I was a Spider-Man guy when I was younger, right? Uh, Spectacular Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man were kind of what I cut my teeth on. Um, but so I'm just wondering, um, you, st- you start out as a comic fan and you're interested in these kind of fantastical universes developed by people like Kirby and Stanley. Uh, how did you transition away from an interest in that uh, not way, I suppose, but transition from an interest in that to an interest in political cartooning uh, or using your artistic gifts to make a polemical point. Well, uh, mostly it, it kind of started at, um, with George W. Bush, really. Um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a coming of age, rite of passage of people around a certain certain age. And here I am in my uh, you know early 20s watching, um, you know, Bush win. I was bothered by that, but didn't, you know, I wasn't really political. And then 9-11 happened and um, uh, my first instinct was to do some kind of comic about that. Mm-hmm. And then I realized just how awful the comic was and just like, like just, I, I didn't really understand anything. So I took some time and started kind of learning things and, and um, it was a, it's a long arduous journey through that. But uh, I always was trying to figure out how to, you know, take my skills and figure out how to use it right. And I, I think it finally started coming together around uh, 2011. Uh, when I started a webcomic about um, the Wisconsin Uprising. Oh, wow. Yeah, my own realization that comics uh, and illustrations could be used to make a political point uh, took me a little while to get there, but it was actually uh, Aaron Magruder's The Boondocks, uh, which a friend of mine introduced me to, uh, both the comic strip and the TV show. Uh, For those of you who don't know, uh, it's a comic about race relations in the United States written with a really satirical edge. Uh, And I say really, I mean, you know, take everything with a grain of salt. Um, but, you know, looking back, I was actually really surprised because as I got older, I realized that some of the things I grew up watching, like The Simpsons, for example, uh, often had kind of a satirical political edge to them uh, that I was uncognizant of. Uh, so I've since become more appreciative uh, of the kind of power that illustration can have in expressing certain points, particularly when combined with other mediums. But what would you say? So around 2011, uh, you really kind of got rolling uh, with these projects. What would you say is the kind of first major work uh, you had that put you on the scene? 
I don't even know if I've had my first major work. I, I don't feel that way anyways, um, because it's been like a gradual, I've, you know, had comics published in like um, uh, program books of sci-fi conventions and um, uh, illustrations published in, you know, different magazines and books and whatnot. Uh, you know, so I, I've been in major publications and stuff, but probably at this point, probably a, a APB, Artists Against Police Brutality, mm -hmm. which was a, um, came out in 2015, I think, 2015, 2016, right around there, and uh, won the uh, Glyph Award for uh, Pioneer Book of the Year. So, you know, it's mm -hmm. something, but I was uh, one of 75 people who contributed to it. Um, so Ooh. it wasn't like a solo outing or anything like that. My, my uh, co-writer kept missing a lot of deadlines and ended up getting like this big extension. And like a week into the extension, I finally get the script. And I had eight days to write, uh, to, to pencil, ink and letter, um, uh, seven pages. And it was amazing that I was able to get it done. Nice. I was actually curious, um, you know, as someone I'm hearing you guys you know, go back and forth on comics and I'm definitely like, a bit uh, ignorant when it comes to comic books. I didn't really read them growing up. And I'm kind of curious when you talk about the kind of cartoon you did, you mentioned the early one that wasn't very good about George W. Bush. Um, like what form did this take? Are we talking kind of like like comic book, like a satirical story? Or then I also have in mind, obviously, like political cartoons, right? The kind of things that appear in the newspaper. And stuff it, like it, that. it was all, a lot of it was uh, kind of me trying to find my voice. I never really got, I, I never, nobody ever saw it. Like I never saw the line. Okay. Um, uh, then I kept trying, trying to get other things off the ground. I remember I did a, uh, uh, seven page, what's seven page? I don't know. It's like five, seven page story, um, for this, uh, book about a guy who can see demons. And, um, I remember That's Mark cool. Texiera was really impressed by that. Um, whenever I met him, it was at the, uh, the opening for the Marvel Knights exhibit. And he like grabs me by the arm and starts dragging me through his, uh, through all of his artwork for the Black Panther and telling me how he did each piece. And it was just, it was absolutely incredible. And he's just like, it's like, okay, so how'd you do this? And it's just like, dude, I, I remember being like in junior high, hanging out with my best friend, like sitting on his floor, playing uh, Nintendo and reading his Ghost Rider. And like, now he's like, ask me how I did something. So, uh, you know, yeah, I, I mean, that's pretty cool. That, that has to be kind of a, if not a I made it moment, at least like, a, oh, you know, <laughs> that's, yeah, def definitely yeah. making strides. Um, yeah, so you, that, that comic also never really found, uh, uh, saw the light of day much, uh, other than like me showing it around to people I had published, you know, bookstores interested in it, but publishers not so much. And mm. I could never get a handle on the story. Well, it's a hard sell. I remember... Um, <laughs> My publisher told me once that uh, one of my academic books had sold a hundred copies, uh, and I was like, "Wow, you know that's got to be pretty bad." He's like, "No, no, no, no. For the line, this is good." And I realized that you know there's different expectations when it comes to any kind of political work uh, in our critical theory community, right? Where you know, yeah, a hundred copies is considered you know not bad. You know, you're, you're doing something. But can you tell us a little bit about like your process per se? Because um, I have to admit, I know nothing about drawing aside from stick figures. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that you'd make fun of even those because my stick figures are nothing, right? Uh, so what goes into a drawing? How do you plan it out? Uh, how long does it take? You know, what's entailed in getting it from, you know, kind of a vision to reality? Um, depends on like uh, a lot of it has to do with like how much time I have to uh, for, for these things. So like... Um, there, there's a lot of meditation I do um, where I'm not actually drawing. 
And, and it seems kind of weird. And I don't know a whole lot of artists who actually do this, but I actually take a lot of time to think about what it is I'm doing and, and about the, the tools and mediums that, that, that uh, I'm using. And I'm always looking for those happy accidents. I know um, uh, recently I switched digital and uh, I've been showing you some of the stuff that I've been doing where, where I've uh, changed up the brush that I was using digitally mm -hmm. and I'm finding more happy accidents that way. And uh, that's something like, like uh, it's, it's with the digital, I was getting, everything was just so pure and I was just starting to get bored of it. And everybody was just like, oh, that's so great. I'm like, it's boring. <laughs> um, but but uh, I'm starting to, to figure out how to kind of loosen up and, and break free. Cause you know, it's only been, uh, what, I think three years since I switched to, uh, to drawing on the iPad. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, uh, you know, you lose uh, like a lot of things like like the, the feedback from the pencil or, or the pen nib on paper. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, what like like what are the what's the advantage? I guess it's just like easier to like, obviously, the, all the advantages that come with digital technology is like easy to like make corrections and stuff like that. But are there other? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I used to I used to screw up all the time with, with my inks because I'd use dip pens and like um, I wouldn't I wouldn't always uh, clean it, you know, uh, get the excess ink off uh, enough. And then all of a sudden it just starts bleeding onto the page or whatnot. And then I'd have to work around it and, and you know, go back in with white paint afterwards. Or uh, sometimes I do it digitally where, where I just scan it in where and then clean it up digitally mm. um, with, with the mouse. Uh, but uh, uh, fortunately, um, I, I mean, I hate to say it, it's because of Gene Colan's passing uh, that really gave me the, the, the tools that I needed. Um, because when he passed away, um, I started using a brush to to uh, uh, to ink, and the um, that actually helped me switch to uh, the Apple Pencil on glass because mm -hmm. now I don't have that feedback from the uh, uh, fr from the the paper like I used to the the texture of the paper. Um, you know, it's it's all smooth, so it's just like inking with a with a brush. And um, I don't know if you know, I certainly never became the master of the brush or anything like that. But uh, it gave me the tools to be able to, you know, whenever I switched to digital that, that I was able to, um, uh, I probably can now switch back to, a, you know, brush inking and, and um, be able to do stuff I couldn't have done before. Well, this is interesting to me because, uh, again, stick figures from my part, but some of our listeners might remember that uh, we plan on doing an episode on phenomenology in the future. So this is kind of a phenomenological question, if you will. But how important, if you're an artist, are the tools that you're using? Because uh, for somebody like me, I would never think of something like how a pencil or how a brush feels in my hands or the strokes that I'm making as being particularly important. Uh, and maybe that's because what I primarily do is the written word. You know what I mean? You know, I just sit there and I type out on my computer. And, you know, what's really important to me is, you know, do I have my book resources on hands? You know, does Microsoft Word cooperate with me this day and all that stuff? Um, so just wondering if you could speak a bit about that. You, you made the choices too. You, you're typing on a computer. You're not, you're not uh, writing out on a legal pad first or, or uh, you know, using a typewriter or, or a word processor, um, which I think that's what George R. R. Martin does, uh, or, or, you know, whatever, whatever uh, combination of things that, that you can think of to, to use, you know, it's like you're using a computer and that's part of your process. Yeah. And, and same thing with uh, whenever it comes to, to me, um, you know, a lot of it's like, what is going to be the, uh, uh, what, what is my goal and what do I need to, to accomplish? So um, I was doing some uh, poster work a while ago mm -hmm. and um, I, I was trying to emulate some children's book authors that I liked, mm -hmm. and, or, you know, artists. Uh, so, so I spent time like kind of deconstructing their work and approaching it uh, not in the same way that they did. Like uh, John J. Muth was one of the, uh, the artists. He was a mm -hmm. comic book artist and now he does children's books. 
he, he does a lot with, uh, with watercolors, you know, very wet media. Um, I don't usually use a lot of watercolors, but I do use uh, ink. So I was using uh, ink washes, uh, much a very similar approach to how he uses watercolors. So um, I was able to kind of emulate the, uh, the, the soft wet on wet look he captures with the ink washes. That's interesting. I mean, is there a similar influence, trajectory of influence in what you're doing? Uh, like if you're really interested in a given artist or a given kind of artistic style at a certain time, does that creatively inform your work? And if so, how? Yeah, well, a lot of times I, I take uh, and break it down. I, um, I came to graphic design much later than my illustration. Um, and a lot of the work you see for Ben is, is graphic design work. Right. Um, I do sneak uh, some illustration in there for the movie nights. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Although the shining, um, if I had time, I would have done like, you know, Ben coming through the, uh, through the door for this week's uh, episode and <laughs> yeah, forests like funny. in the corner screaming, you know, but, <laughs> um, uh, you know, no more, no more Jordan Peterson clips. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but uh, instead uh, I, I'm like, I don't have time for this. So I, so I just, you know, use the the carpeting and, and just basic design stuff. And it looked, you know, it looks great. But like, uh, I came to design much later. And one of the things with design is uh, since um, it took me a lot longer to develop my own style, I was actually just deconstructing um, graphic designers that I liked. You know, I started off with um, uh, Dave McKean and um, uh, David Carson, uh, who, who are two very important, uh, you know, you may, you may recognize Dave McKean as the guy from Sandman. He did all the covers. Oh. And um, David Carson um, was, uh, he, he was a surfer who started a magazine that ended up becoming like the magazine of the grunge movement. And he did a bunch oh, of cool. album covers for like Nine Inch Nails and Bush. And, and so, so it's, it's just a continual, uh, just like, you know, uh, taking all the stuff. Uh, Reed Miles is actually a lot who I play with, uh, you know, visually with uh, Ben Burgess's stuff. You can look through uh, Reed Miles' uh, Blue Note Records that he did. And you could almost find like a one-for-one -one comparison of some of the, uh, the thumbnails I did for Ben, which is kind of playing off of what Reed Miles did. That's what I want to actually. That's a good segue into what I want to ask you next. So, how did you ever meet up uh, with all these zero books left guys, uh, and what kind of inspired you about the project they were engaging in? Because uh, I know that I met Ben back in, I guess it was 2018, uh, when I read "Give Them an Argument," um, and I invited him into my class to kind of talk about the structure of logical argumentation when you're making a political argument. Uh, but you've done a lot of stuff for him, and then you've also obviously done the Michael Brooks cover, uh, and you know now you've you know, illustrated. Uh, you know, some other people that we know, which is kind of cool. So what kind of motivated that? Or what kind of, uh, how did you meet these people? Oh, yeah, a lot of it is uh, me. Uh, well, I, I uh, used to be able to do this. And uh, sadly, like the, the app I was using has stopped working. And I just, and I couldn't find an app that, to replace it. So I just kind of moved on from doing it. But uh, I have a YouTube channel. And you can see about 100 videos of uh, warmups that I was doing, where I just come on for like a half hour I'd have like the pencils already done and I just would uh, do the inks and lay in the, uh, um, uh, the paper texture and go in with like charcoal and stuff all digitally. And you can just watch it appear magically on the screen um, as I talk about whatever, uh, whatever's on my mind uh, while I'm doing that. It was, part of it was just like, okay, this is what I'm listening to while I'm doing like my actual real projects later. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm listening to uh, Michael Brooks. I'm listening to, um, uh, you know, Doug Lane, the Surfs, uh, whatnot. And uh, so I just started drawing them as the warmups, mm -hmm. and uh, that kind of attracted a lot of people's attention. Um, I know uh, 
Harvey has heard about me for uh, Harvey JK mm -hmm. has heard about me for years, you know, because I started doing the comic about the Wisconsin uprising and whatnot. Right. Um, we've never met, no clue who I was. Uh, like, like people kept mentioning to him to me, finally drew him and he finally figured out who I was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a good way to actually attract some attention. If you do a neat illustration of somebody and they're like, that's cool, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'm like, uh, I'm so happy I did the one for Doug Lane because uh, I don't think I would be doing Michael's, uh, I would have I would have had the opportunity to do Michael's book for that. Um, oh, did you do Doug's, uh, the orange one? It's like a brownish. Yeah, brownish, orange, you know, that one? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, that looked good. I always thought that was cool. So what attracted you about their politics precisely? Uh, I mean, the Zero Books world, they're in the world of the kind of rad left. Uh, it's a pretty small one, although I'd say it's been growing uh, since 2016 with Bernie Sanders. But you know, what, drew, what drew you to them eventually, initially? Initially, well, a, a lot of it was just like, I, I like history more than I like theory. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I kind of understand uh, the theory that I do understand through history and uh, like, you know, reading labor unions, which was a, a large part, part of uh, what uh, that uh, Wisconsin uprising webcomic was about, was about labor unions. And I started researching about labor unions and learning about the anarchists and learning about the socialists and the communists that, that made up the, the, the labor movement and, and Joe Hill and um, right. all those crazy characters that, that uh, um, you know, were, were murdered by the police and, and are now legend. Uh, uh, so so um, it, it was partly, you know, kind of coming up through there um, and trying to learn more about like what it was they were actually uh, working on, what they were, uh, uh, you know, what they believed and what they understood. And I um, found like, like the Zero Books channel was like a really good way to kind of get to know theory without actually, because I've never taken a uh, philosophy class. I've never delved into theory like, uh, you know, some people I'm not... Um, that's not my strength, <laughs> but uh, it, it was it was kind of a through history, which I kind of understand better than theory. Cool. And I'm curious, too. Did you um, <clears throat> you mentioned like at the beginning, you know, George W. Bush's uh, election being sort of an influence on your political beliefs. But uh, like, have you always kind of identified as being on the left or has that evolved and how has that changed over time? Certainly has evolved because uh, I remember like back in sixth grade was just like, yeah, that George Bush guy, he, he, he's got better experience with that Dukakis fellow, you know, <laughs> but, you know, what a sixth graders know. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, but, you know, now that I understand things, um, I could see the faults in both of them and, and hate them both equally as much. It, it kind of was a slow evolution, but a lot of it was like, um, you know, going back to like a lot of the stuff I was uh uh, watching like Robocop, for example, is like one of my all-time favorite movies. Um, uh, the music of Moxie Fruvis. Uh, here's, mm. here's a band that actually is um, singing about, you know, like satirizing Rush Limbaugh and far-right militias, you know, s doing songs with lines like America first, the rest get the pieces, and yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah making yeah. fun of, you know, the, 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 these people, um, you know, years before this was a, ever a thing. Um, you know, reading books about like how Jack Kirby's the son of a union organizer. Right. Um, who, who fled from Russia because of uh, the pogroms and, and uh, grew up here in the States. And um, honestly, a lot of his work kind of um, led to the creation of Image Comics, uh, you know, his fight for his rights as an, as an artist. And uh, Image Comics uh, is not socialist. I mean, like, like you could not call Rob Liefeld, um, who's, who's uh, 
probably a reactionary Christian if you really boil down his political beliefs, a, a, a socialist, but yet at the same token, because he wanted to control his creations and what his artwork was doing, um, essentially created this, this um, not quite, you know, like, like the, the philosophy behind it's not there as, as being left, mm -hmm. but like it's proto left in a way, like, mm -hmm. like you know, it's, it, it understands these things uh, in, a, in a certain way that, that kind of led me to thinking about other stuff because, you know, here I'm in high school, you know, like reading about these businesses and like creators rights. And, and um, that, that was kind of an important thing for me, uh, you know, like formative, like, like seeing, you know, uh, Scott McCloud and, and um, uh, the Eastman and Laird, uh, the Ninja Turtles guys and, and uh, all these people being like, you know, the, 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 um, uh, the civil rights uh, uh, of, of, uh, of my generation really, uh, you know, fighting for comic book creators rights, which, which um, if you look at the history, if, if for people who don't actually know, uh, comic book creators were poor. The Superman creators in 1978, when the Superman film came out, were living in poverty. Really? Um, yeah. Hmm. Uh, one of them, because uh, uh, one of them, he, he, he ended up going kind of blind, bullshit. the artist. He, he went blind. Um, uh, and then he, uh, the other guy, um, and I, I apologize for getting their names off the top of my head. It's like Schuster and Siegel, yeah. I think. Siegel, yeah. Yeah, one of them's Canadian, I think, actually. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I can't remember which one's which off the top of my head. But anyways, um, like the, the writer one, he ended up uh, like sending in pitches, but like people would burn the pitches because they would be like infested with fleas because of his living conditions. Wow. Ew, really? um, yeah. And what was the deal with that? Is it just intellectual property? Like wasn't wasn't respected for comic book creators or something? Pretty or? much. I mean, they signed away all their rights. Uh, now, now um, Bob Kane um, was the smartest guy in comics because of this. He he kind of he actually uh, grew up with uh, high school friends with Will Eisner. Will Eisner. Sorry, was, just for those of us who don't know, Bob Kane was creator of a little hero called Batman, uh, who's um, had a few movies. Bill Finger created Batman. Bill Finger created Batman. I thought it was Kane who did that. Kane really? got the paperwork. No, um, Bob Kane came up with the initial concept. This uh, guy okay. had like red yeah. long johns and a stupid looking glider. <laughs> and it looked, you know, nothing. And uh, he took it to his friend, Bill Finger. And Bill Finger's like, okay, here's what you're doing wrong. Took the character, <laughs> made everything that we know of Batman. And then Bob Kane basically uh, ran a studio system where he just signed his name on everything. So he wasn't writing, he wasn't drawing, but according to DC Comics, he was writing, drawing, and getting paid for all that. And he had a really nice, cushy deal with DC Comics. And uh, there's a fantastic movie about Bill Finger on Hulu, which I highly recommend uh, anybody to watch. I cried uh, my eyes out at the end. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what kind of it bullshit. Called? Oh, it's like, it's something, Bill Finger's in the title. Okay, cool, cool. If you look up Bill Finger, you're good. Cool. Oh yeah, but that's kind of bullshit, man. If you think that you own the vision, the rights to Batman's image, you know what I mean, or Superman's image, that's gotta be worth a hell of a lot of money. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like Bill Finger, you know, also lived in poverty, like a lot of these other guys. Um, he died alone on his couch the night wow. before the episode of Batman, the the TV show from the '60s, he wrote aired. So he wow. never got to see his last uh, piece of writing in action. Hmm. Well, the, the thing is. It's something I've noticed about a lot of creative creative people, and maybe you know your experience is different, Victor. But you know this is pretty ubiquitous, which is that a lot of creative people I know are creators, uh, but they're not exactly savvy businessmen. You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, largely because you know business is kind of just not something that they're really all that intrigued by. You know what I mean? It's technical, lawyerly. Uh, you need to be a little bit cutthroat, uh, as you know your story attests in order to get by in it. 
uh, you know, whereas creators don't really want to have to deal with all this stuff. They want to create uh, and they just want to kind of earn enough so that they can continue doing what it is that they love doing. And it sounds to me like what you're saying, Finger was like that? Uh, from what I understand, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an expert on Bill Finger. Um, I don't think I've ever really read any books focused on Bill Finger. I know there's a few out there mm -hmm. um, that, that are definitely worth reading. And, um, uh, but like you can go out there, there's a, there's a, a fun video series that Stan Lee did in the late 80s, early 90s, um, where, where he'd interviewed uh, comic book greats. And it was like, you know, Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee and Todd McFarlane. And then he'd also interview Bob Kane and Sergio Gomez and, and uh, one of my favorites. Um, oh my God, I just blanked on his name. I feel really embarrassed now. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's all good. He's like, like uh, I, I literally like met him when I was like a small child and um, no clue who he really was at the time because he was just doing Georgia Bulldog artwork. And um, uh, well, maybe it'll maybe it'll maybe it'll come back to you. He was uh, like a big mad artist and he did a lot of Tales from the Crypt back in the day. Oh, cool. So so like, actually, he, he's big deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was actually going to ask, you know, when you were talking about. Um, you know, some of your inspir like your sort of political inspiration. And like, I think the, the, the satire and some of the music, right. I think you mentioned Moxie Fruvis and I was kind of curious about like where, what you see the role I like of humor in politics, like how important you do, because I guess I'll run like a little observation I've been having by you and kind of get your reaction to it. But I suppose one of the things that I worry about the left, you know, we're all sympathetic to the left is kind of like the way that, uh, humor is like, is starting to be, um, maybe like less appreciated or there's like a fear, you know, and, and I guess like my inclination is like humor is egalitarian in, in, in a certain sense. It's more likely to be egalitarian, but what I'm seeing more, and maybe this is more just like on the woke left or something, is kind of like a fixation with like, you know, solemnity, like everything's serious and these are like serious issues. And it's like, um, and I guess like I see like obviously like political cartoons and comics as being, I think not always, but often have like a humor or satire aspect. And I just, Wonder if you had any thoughts or reactions to that, or disagreements or agreements. Yeah, um, I, mean, I mean, like I find humor is like the the universal tool to kind of reach everybody. Mm -hmm. um, I, I know I'm working on a graphic novel, and uh, there's a lot of humor I've peppered throughout the whole book, and it's about ice and immigration and imperialism. So, like, these are not very light or funny issues that that uh, I'm delving into, and yet laugh a minute. It, you know, <laughs> here it is. Like, uh, I have one story where I'm kind of explaining about the origins of, um, of asylum. And, um, you know, I'm talking about how, you know, uh, where the word comes from and how it dates back to the uh, time of Homer and the picture of Homer I use is Homer Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, you know, then I, of course I'm a character in there. Like uh, if, you, if you ever read Understanding Comics, I'm like Scott McCloud walking mm -hmm. through this whole thing, kind of guiding the reader through this, uh, right. through the story at the same time. And I'm um, like holding the picture. Oh, is this the only picture of Homer uh, of Homer we have? And so, so yeah, there, there's um, you know, a, a lot of just like little things. Uh, there's a there's a ten page story about uh, Dora the Explorer going through uh, Donald Trump's America, um, and it gets darker and darker as the whole thing goes on. Um, uh, you know, it starts off like a normal episode of Dora the Explorer. Next thing you know, um, Benicio del Toro is getting deported. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I mean, and, 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 and Mexican. <laughs> You know, some of the thought, like some examples I had in mind, you know, actually not too long ago, my girlfriend and I watched, uh, I wonder if you've seen the movie, uh, The People versus Larry Flint, right? It's about like Larry Flint's life and, and it, it revolves around the Supreme Court you know case. What? I've not like, seen it. 
It's interesting. It's uh, Woody Harrelson. It's good, but but like one of the things it's it's about like um when Larry Flint or sorry not Larry Flint um Jerry Falwell right the religious conservative was suing a uh, Hustler magazine for defaming him because of some of like the satire that they that they made of him right and like one of them was they made a like a, a commercial for Campari which they were satirizing a commercial for Campari which was was the original idea behind it is like describe your first time and it was kind of a play on like your first time having sex but your first time having Campari and then they made one that was like Campari describe your first time and it's like Jerry Falwell describing like him having sex with his mother in, in an outhouse or something like that like ridiculous just to say that like his sexual morality is is BS and I just think about those kinds of like irreverent uh, like very irreverent humor and maybe like you know Charlie Hebdo right in France like they had a pretty edgy cover recently right with like the queen and uh, her her net her her uh, knee on like um, Meghan Markle's neck and I don't know do you have thoughts about like like that more irreverent stuff at all I mean like like Charlie Hebdo is is of a different generation than than uh you know if you actually like like go in there and like see the the cartoonist these were like guys working whenever I was born. So, right. you know, it, it's it's a, a very different kind of humor. Plus, I mean, you know, it's French too. So exactly. uh, they, they like Jerry Lewis, you know, so yeah, so yeah. their humor is very different from ours. Um, but but uh, I mean, they, they again, like uh, a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the, the humor of the people doing it is, is, is an older sensibility. Um, and um, I don't, you know, honestly, like Charlie Hepto doesn't do anything for me, but like I appreciate yeah. the history of them, and, and yeah. I kind of would love at some point to actually work, at, you know, do something with Charlie Hepto. But um, uh, you know, I don't speak French, so you know, I don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Fair just enough. Be like you know, Boudijed fromage or something. I don't know. No, but I, I think. Yeah, I, yeah, no doubt. Well, you know, what Victor said is very true, though. I mean, when I think about you know the political left. Uh, the political theorist Albert Hirschman put it very well, where he said, we're fundamentally associated with earnestness. You know what I mean? That's the great strength and the great weakness of the left, because people can be inspired by earnestness. They can find it intriguing. They can find it has a lot of integrity. Uh, but it really does set us up for mockery by the political right quite often, which is something that he points out that the, if you look at the history of political thought, conservatives have generally been better at satirizing their political opponents than we have. Uh, and he points out that there are a few exceptions to this, like Marx, for example, who genuinely was good at satirizing, you know, bourgeois political economists and stuff. Uh, and I think, you know, that what you're doing is really very, not just helpful, but vital in that respect, because you're giving us a bit of an edge uh, that we need that helps make the earnestness, um, and we should be earnest, I should say, easier uh, to accept, right? Uh, and it helps broaden our audience and allows us to access people who might find you know, this kind of zealous approach to life a little bit too much to take, uh, but are willing to accept it as long as it's packaged with a little bit of a reverence um, and an understanding that they can have a laugh when they want to. Um, so I guess the last question I have for you uh, is, what do you see yourself doing in the future? Uh, so you've done a couple of high profile projects now uh, where you've illustrated major figures, you know, on the kind of online left. Uh, you know, you've got a couple of new things in the bag right now. Uh, once all that's done, what would you like to do? I know um, there, there's actually two graphic novel projects I'd love to pursue in the future um, once once I wrap up the the one I'm doing now. Uh, one of them would be a look at the uh, prison industrial complex. Um, and uh, the big reason for that is uh, my, my nephew is uh, serving 30 um, for, oh, for murder. Um, he was uh, he, he was a foster kid that uh, my sister uh, brought took in. Really good kid. Um, I don't know the whole story behind it. Um, uh, you know, not I'm not very close to him, but at the same token, like 
I think that there's a way I could actually uh, help him out by doing this and, and kind of build something for him. And the other thing I, I really want to do is um, a project to kind of continue on Michael Brooks's legacy. Um, I have an idea of doing something about, because uh, uh, I kept trying to, uh, I kept pitching to him like, hey, let's do a graphic all about Lula. So, so I was thinking like uh, uh, a book called like, you know, Michael and Lula and just kind of like, just present these two people and like understand what's, you know, what the connection is between the two. That's a cool idea. I think that sounds cool, though. I mean, especially now that Lula is back in the political game in Brazil, uh, it would also be pretty timely. Yeah, it would be. No, that's that's a cool idea. The the Michael and Lula thing for sure. Um, the prison industrial complex too. I mean, that's an interest of mine. You know, like I I, I remember it when I was in uh, doing my master's, uh, taking a class about uh, prison prison abolition. You know, and um, being very convinced that. Uh, that there's, you know, no, no, like prisons, it's are probably not really doing uh, much to make our society better. So, uh, I think that's definitely like ripe territory. They're they're a bad idea from the 1800s, the way they're they're put together, because it was the um, can't remember which religious organization, you know, designed the prisons to be a place to like meditate and pray, and that's what the concept is from, uh, you know, like 19th century thinking, and. Um, but it's not like that. And, and the, the problem is, is that nobody has come along to rethink. And, and I don't think that, uh, uh, that, that uh, you know, we're gonna actually abolish prisons because there are some people that need to be removed from society for yeah. one reason or another. Um, you know, like, like uh, you know, so, so obviously, you know, we're gonna have to have some kind of carceral system, but mm-hmm. we need to have one that's just, and um, you know, I'm not saying like, let all the prisoners go, but there's a lot we can let out. Oh, yeah, for sure. Have you looked at Norway's system at all, like, or read about it? I mean, I, I've only, you know, like, like I've done a lot of surface stuff on this uh, issue, but not really delved in the way I have with, um, uh, with uh, immigration. Um, and, and I know, like, there's a lot of overlap, too, with immigration, um, yeah. especially the book I'm reading right now, um, uh, Border and Rule, which, which uh, it's, it's more about neoliberalism and, and uh, how, how it affects the world and how that's leading to a lot of immigration. And yes, it's hyper-focused on the United States, but it's also talking about you know, like Bangladesh and, and other places too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, you should look at, um, you should you should have a look at the Norway uh, example if you get a chance, because they the, what they're doing with their prisons, I think is like very inspiring, I think for people who who see the injustice in, in the current carceral system, especially in the US and most Westernized countries, I guess it's pretty bad, but states is particularly I mean, bad. I they're think. removed from society, but they're still like treated like human beings and exactly. not dehumanized like what we do. If I remember I mean, a little bit, of, I think I yeah, saw something on the now once. Yeah, they're in fact they're treated uh, like they're they're actually given a lot of opportunities to better themselves. They're given like a lot of autonomy and freedom to like move around and like the guards play sports with them. There's like a collaborative environment where like you know, yeah, I think you, with human beings you you're gonna get what you put in to them. Uh, like 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 I mean not to compare it to dogs, but it's like you know you treat a dog terribly its whole life, it's gonna be like an angry dog, and it's like I think it's it shouldn't be a surprise that the same thing is gonna happen with human beings. You know, I'm concerned my nephew is going to come out of prison and just be this this absolute monster because he's been brutalized for the past, um, you know, because he's up for parole in uh, 2030. Wow. So, you know. Well, I should say my dad actually worked as a prison guard for quite a few years. Must have been in it. Yeah. um, Don Jail. And he still talks about it. Right. And, you know. He moved on from there to you going to human rights law, right? That was kind of what this was all about, was putting him through an education so he wouldn't have to do it anymore. But he said, you know, you'd meet most of the guys in there. And 95% of them 
uh, weren't fundamentally bad guys in his experience. Uh, they were kind of like what Victor was describing. You know, they'd had a really hard life. They were associated into extremely violent communities. Uh, and if you'd put them in a different environment where things were working out a little bit better, uh, for instance, in actually just society where everyone had opportunities, they probably would never have wound up in jail, right? Um, he said, though, that you know, saying that there was 5% of the people uh, who sometimes would actually come from very privileged backgrounds, but they were just rotten to the core. Uh, and he told me the story about a guy, uh, he'd murdered four children uh, for the fun of it, right? Uh, and he said, you could immediately tell the difference between him and all the guys who just had a hard life because none of those guys would talk to him. None of them would go anywhere near him. None of them wanted to have anything to do with him, right? Because uh, he just scared the shit out of everyone because he was a bad guy. Uh, and that's what I've always thought. You know, there'll always be the Ted Bundys and Ed Geins and you know, Adolf Hitlers of the world uh, who are going to do terrible things. And we need some way to control them. Uh, but yeah, we but don't they're only going to be like less than 1% of people, you know? Yeah, exactly. Super tiny amount. We, we don't need prisons to deal with our... We shouldn't be using prisons as a way of dealing with our social and economic problems, which I think is fundamentally what you see in so much of the Western world. Uh, and one of the reasons I like the Nordic model that Victor was talking about is they seem to appreciate that a little bit more. Um, but but anyway, uh, so Andrew, um, that's all the questions that I had for you, unless you have one more, Victor. No, well, I was just gonna, I was just gonna say, like, just going on your point, you know, I think like doing a graphic novel about the prison industrial complex is like a very, uh, like, I think needed. So, so I hope you, I hope you follow through with that. I think it's, a, it's a good idea. Just as one last question, just to take you at the end, uh, and I'm gonna be judging for you this, Andrew. So you better be, uh, you know, have a good answer. Uh, best X Men storyline. Ooh, long form X Men storyline. Long form. Oh, um. Okay, I've always I've always been kind of partial to like what I was reading at the time, which I never felt was finished, which was kind of um, the Shadow King storyline that was oh, going okay. from like uh, X Men two fifty, because um, it was right after the uh, the Inferno, um, and, and like something was building up with the Shadow King, and uh, they introduced Gambit, which which Gambit had a power that they stopped talking about. He used to be able to push people with his mind. Really? Huh. Yeah, yeah. No, he he meets the Shadow King, and he's like. You should let us go. And the Shadowkin's like, yeah, I should let you go. And the Shadowkin's like, wait, what am I doing? Um, <laughs> but but like like it seemed to be going to, to, to a very interesting place. Um, one of my big complaints about comics, and um, I, I've said this before, is like a lot of times, like you'll you'll you know somebody will write a great story, like like say Frank Miller's Daredevil, and mm -hmm. we'll we'll introduce you know the whole archetype of like um, you know what's a typical Daredevil story? Real simple. Uh, Daredevil meets a girl. The girl works for a bad guy. Um, the girl and the bad guy destroy his life. The girl dies. <laughs> like every single uh, Daredevil story is based on the whole Frank Miller Electra thing. And it's repeated over and over again by different writers who come in and try to tell the exact same story more or less. Um, mm. So, you know, there, there's some different, but for the most part, that's, that's kind of what they do. Matt Narvok gets his life back together. The next writer comes in, introduces a new girl, destroys his life, you know, <laughs> goes over and over again like that. Um, X-Men was very different because like um, Chris Claremont wrote it for 17 years. So, so instead of, you know, uh, seeing a cycle of characters like, like going through like a, a dark Phoenix saga and, a, a, and, a, um, a, you know, a days of future past kind of story, they, they, they'd, uh, he kept pushing things forward and, you know, whether you liked it or not, you know, I, I liked the Australian lineup. Um, I thought those were, that, you know, that was a lot of fun with, uh, with Gateway and, um, 
you know, it, it, it was it was uh, always very interesting to see, you know, that Chris Claremont was always not trying to repeat himself and go forward while other writers were coming in after him and just spent their time repeating everything that he was, you know, his, you know, 17 years of writing one book and repeating all of his stories. Well, I, th I think, yeah, he just had an indelible impact on the whole line. Um, Age of Apocalypse is mine, I should say. Age of, oh, I was going to, I was going to say. This made me think of one other question to ask Andrew too, because we actually did a podcast uh, episode that kind of revolved around like that new Snyder cut of the uh, Justice League or whatever. And I'm kind of, I mean, again, I have to admit listeners, like I know fucking nothing about comic books or anything. Like I haven't even seen that movie, but uh, I don't know. Did you have thoughts on, on the Snyder cut? Uh, of the movie? I have not did you watched watch it, it yet. I've been okay. procrastinating on that one. Um, uh, mostly because like Zack Snyder does not get uh, a lot of these characters. I've yeah, seen Man sure. of Steel. I've seen, you know, Superman v. Uh, Batman, Dawn of Justice, the worst court case I've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he kind of misses a lot of the points. He might get moments right in, in there. Like, like I mean, his, his Batman was like Frank Miller's Batman, but there was no none of uh, the pathos that, that uh, Miller was able to bring into it. Uh, yeah. so, so I'm kind of procrastinating on it just because of, uh, like, like, I've seen enough of his superhero stuff. I know what I'm getting into. And I really don't want to watch it, but I'm going to watch it. Yeah, I think, it. Matt, didn't you argue that, that like, or we kind of came to the conclusion that he has kind of, like, reactionary right-wing tendencies a little bit in his mythology, kind of? Like, it's very uh, Jordan Peterson fantasy-esque? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. He's a big fan of Ayn Rand, and you can you can definitely see that in his interpretation of these characters. Uh, I, I mean, to be fair, we know that Miller is kind of politically gone a little bit off the deep end as well, right? Uh, yeah, but... Miller's complicated, but but uh, for the most part now, uh, you know, in the 80s, whenever Dark Knight Returns yeah. comes out, which which apparently holds up still, um, you know, I'm not the only person who thinks this. It does. The, the first one really holds up well. Uh, Dark Knight Strikes Again, not as good. Yeah, none of the other stuff, but but anyways, um, he was more against like this, you know, like the man or, or whatever, you know, whoever was in charge, whether it be, you know, he's critical of every side and and uh, it's not a bad place to be but unfortunately that kind of led him down the path that he did um you know because you know uh him posting blogs going because 9 11 um yeah and and holy terror <laughs> yeah that's always a good uh, that's always a good sign when you read somebody's blog and it's like what really all in caps happened on 9 11 or something right it's like, mm. yeah no he was like he's like we got to be a police state because 9 11 and yeah, you know yeah, that was right. like his excuse for stuff and succumb to the uh, to the fear that i guess precipitated the um what was it the uh the patriot act mindset i suppose yeah yeah and that's why like um you know back to snyder um his watchmen was a big uh a tough thing to watch because he made um rorschach who's supposed to be this detestable right-wing horrible character yeah. into a likable hero in, in uh snyder's movie and kind of like just, you know, like, like, cause he stripped away all the bad stuff to make him the hero of the incel. Hmm. Um, <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing. I mean, you think about, um, well, I'm with this cause I, I know we, where we have to do another episode, uh, in an hour, but, um, I know Alan Moore is an anarchist, right? Uh, or at least his anarchist sympathies. And I've always interpreted Watchmen as, a very, very, not anti-superhero, but just you should be wary of the mythologization of these kinds of characters. And one of the things that was really refreshing about it is it was a realistic take on these people. And it showed you that they're really flawed. Uh, and some people like Rorschach, quite frankly, are kind of fucked up. Uh, and, 
then you put it in the hands of somebody like Zack Snyder, and he seemed to have almost missed that point where now all of a sudden they were genuinely like gods, right? They held themselves to different standards than the rest of us. And uh, they appeared to have superpowers too. I mean, like, like yeah. you know, because like you don't kick somebody and they don't go flying across the room like that if you're normal. Hmm. Oh, in the in the in the in the graphic novels, do they not have any superpowers? Except for Doctor Manhattan. Except for Doctor Manhattan, yeah. Yeah, like even uh, the only one who's kind of uniquely gifted is Ozymandias, the blonde guy, uh, who's basically like a kind of like we were talking about just in our last podcast, uh, Victor. You know, uh, on on anarchism. You know, he's a hyper hyper utilitarian, right? He's just not afraid to go there. Uh, mm. and he follows it through to uh, its logical conclusion as he sees it, right? But he's, like, super smart. He's got billions of dollars. He's, like, 40 years old, and he has, like, the body of a 25-year-old because he, you know, works out, you know, six hours a day. But he's, like, the closest to a superhero in this universe right. aside from Dr. Manhattan. But look, Andrew, it was really <laughs> great chatting with you. Um, I yeah. learned a lot about art, and, you know, uh, it certainly cast my own stick figure uh, efforts uh, in the shadows uh, considerably more. But thanks a lot for coming on. And yeah, uh, do you have anything that you'd like our listeners to take a look at while you're here? Um, well, I know I just started a Substack. I have a uh, orphaned uh, comic that I wrote that I think the world needs to see because nobody's uh, kind of saying what I was thinking about uh, uh, about Jimmy Dore and certain characters that mm. are um, of the left but not on the left, uh, like Jimmy Dore. If if you cool. if you kind of understand what I'm saying with that. Um, <laughs> If you, you want to send me a link to that, we can put it on um, in the description. Yeah. On it yet? It's, it's still working on getting that uh, completed, but uh, like I said, it will be showing up there in probably a couple of weeks. Perfect. Cool. All right, we'll take a look at that. Well, thanks a lot, Andrew. And uh, again, you know, you can check out his artwork uh, on his YouTube channel, and then also for people like Michael Brooks, Doug Lane, uh, and of course for the Ben Burgess stuff. So thank you very much, Andrew. Great. To yeah, have thanks, you. Andrew. It was nice talking to you and meeting you. It was nice to meet you too. All right. Sure. See ya.